I think people don't realize that the South is a very mixed place. You know, I grew up in predominantly black communities and, you know, yeah, not just my family being, you know, half black. Um, you know, my high school was close to 80% African-American and I don't think people realize that about the South. I think they just imagine like Confederate flags flying everywhere and, you know, just kind of your Bubba Redneck characters. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Multiracial White Boy Podcast. I'm your host, Kim Noonan. I'm a mixed transracial adoptee from Vietnam. I am Vietnamese. And this is my podcast where I examine the impact of my white upbringing by having personal discussions with other mixed individuals about racial identity. That small audio clip is from my guest, musician Bevan Luna. Please, immediately after you listen to this podcast episode, find her music on Spotify or go to bevanluna.com, B-E-V-I-N-L-U-N-A.com and give her music a listen. She is so talented in... From Memphis, she's from the South. I'm super excited because, you know, you get to hear her story. And honestly, you know, I get to recommend you her music because she's fantastic. So a couple weeks ago with my episode with Tori Sorge, I had mentioned on the podcast that I finally declared that I'm Vietnamese it's, it's always been something I've, I've struggled with and failed to acknowledge with honestly, with authenticity and with conviction, because <laughs> it's always like, yeah, I'm Vietnamese, but I'm really white. Like I, I was thinking about that the other day. I used to say that all the time. I'm, I'm real. I'm Vietnamese, but I'm basically white. I'm super white. Like I would play it off jokingly. But here's the thing. The more I said that I realized, the more I the more that the way that I framed that throughout my entire life was intentional. And it was intentional, obviously, to remove me from being Vietnamese and saying that I'm Vietnamese. Um, so now that I, I guess, came to the realization that I am Vietnamese and that I'm okay with it and that it's offered me. M- so much more more relief to to say it um but also what is it what does it mean to me when i say that i am vietnamese you know after years of resisting you know saying this for the greater part of my life as i've said before again and again on this podcast and the truth is i don't know what i do know I, i'm much more willing to discover what this question means and live it out and embrace it with curiosity as opposed to to the shame and negative connotations that I often felt when I identified myself to anyone and others as being from Vietnam and being Vietnamese. And often, you know, I have to say it to myself now and then since I declared it. You know, it's just weird. I, I was, it was Sunday night after our, I don't know what was going on in my life. And I just, I said it to myself and it felt okay. But since that moment, I've said it again and again to myself. Perhaps it's to remind myself who I am, where I'm from, and that it's okay. 
So I've been sitting in this space for a while. Like, what does it mean to me to finally say I'm Vietnamese to people and share it with others? And look, it's not like some light switch went on and now I feel utterly free. That is hardly the case. But I can honestly tell you I feel lighter and there's less baggage on this journey I'm on from here on out. So I don't know why I wanted to share that with you. Felt a little vulnerable, I guess, telling you, revealing it last week, a couple weeks ago on the podcast. Um, But more to come because, like I said, you know, I think what does it mean to be Vietnamese to me? That question, I'm just going to have to live it out. Live that question and find out. Okay, more to come. So back to our guest, Bevan Luna. She was born in Hawaii. However, she's not Hawaiian. She was just born there. Her mother, as Bevan describes, is a fiery southern redhead. I love that. And her black father was born in the Dominican Republic. And it's kind of nice to have someone also who her father served in Afghanistan. So it's kind of nice to have someone who's who served in this country. So, you know, I think that's... It just adds more interesting layers to Bevan's already unique individual identity. Bevan is fairly white and presenting, and she bounced around a lot from state to state growing up, living in Hawaii, Washington, Puerto Rico, Florida, Tennessee, and Pennsylvania while she was growing up. And her parents divorced when she was 10, and she spent the rest of her childhood splitting time between her parents' homes. You know, as she says, being half black, half white, and Latina, and spending time between these cultures was quite the experience. And the Caribbean and the American South are very different, yet same in many ways, strangely enough. So in addition to being a really talented musician, I wanted to talk to Bevan because she grew up in the South. And as you listen, her music, her personality are very much rooted in the South. In 2014, I went to New Orleans for about five days. But I don't know much about the South at all. And sadly, I've had all those preconceived notions that Bevan talked about. Confederate flags. You know, I think of slavery, hicks, shit kickers, you know, the failure of Reconstruction in America, racist. And that's why I wanted to talk to Bevan. Because chances are there are only, you know, these are only my stupid assumptions. You know, look, every stereotype has some, you know, layer of truth to it. But man, when I went to New Orleans people, I loved the Southern people and I loved the culture there, the music, the people, the food. I loved everything about New Orleans when I visited, you know, when I went there. And it definitely has to be one of the great American cities. And what's interesting is despite being multiracial, Bevan has deep Southern roots in her. That's my point. You could tell from her music, you can hear the little twang in her voice come up when you speak with her after a while. And she is one of the most calm, relax people that puts you at ease when you're around her yeah 
You know, so it was terrific to talk about her upbringing in the South and her many travels. And like many of the great Southern artists, there's such humility and humanity in the way that she talks about her lived experience. This is me and the incredibly talented Bevan Luna. When I talk to people, I don't know much about them. I don't know shit about anyone really. Yeah. And I have these all, all these general assumptions about people. Right. Like we anybody. all do. Like, like we, we all, all do. do. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, it dissolves immediately when I start talking to them about their lived experience, mm-hmm. um, which is why I like doing this so much. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I really liked, you know, listening to was your voice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You had a really, really soothing kind of and you could pick up your little little hints of your southern accent. Yeah. Here and there. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> when do you, do you do you find yourself where it comes out a little bit more sometimes? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, when I'm on the phone with my family, it just goes haywire. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it, I was walking on the river trail just yesterday, actually, and me and this woman stopped and we were both looking out over this kind of meadow and I'm into watching birds. And so I was looking at these birds and she stops and she's like, you sound Southern, you know, she's like, are you, where are you from? And I said, you know, I was from the Memphis area. And, um, it's funny. Cause when I go home, everybody there is like, you need to slow down so I can understand what you're saying, you know? <laughs> so it's just like, I don't know. It's weird. It's a weird thing. Well, I loved hearing, you know, about your story from Memphis. In fact, I always have everyone, you know, write a little bio like you did and you wrote a good extensive amount. And I love when people do that because it gives me an idea of just so many things culturally, you know, mm-hmm. certain moments in your life, the divorce. I was like, oh, they do, you know, you divorced, you know, your parents divorced around the same time my parents did. Okay. You know, I think I was like 10 or 12 or something like that. I was in eighth grade or seventh grade. Okay. And, um, so yeah, I just, all those things play in. It feels like to what, and I could be wrong to your racial identity. Oh no, absolutely. Because it's your family. Right. right? And you're moving between different places and. Well, especially um, you, I mean, you, okay. Where how many places do you live? Have I lived? Yeah. Um, Oh, I don't even know. I have Um, the list here. I can definitely. You were born in Hawaii. Yeah. Lived in Washington. We state of Washington. Yeah. the, The state of Washington. We were in Tacoma for a little while when I was really young. Okay. And then Puerto Rico. Yep. Florida. Is that when your dad divorced and you're moving back and forth from Memphis to Miami? Yeah, pretty much. Um, My mom's family was still in West Tennessee. And so after we came back from Puerto Rico, we went to Tennessee, spent some time there and then lived in Memphis. And then my dad got stationed in Miami and started working there. And so he moved to Miami and then we stayed and kind of sold everything and buttoned everything up. And then we went to Miami And then we lived there. And then over the course of that time period, my parents got divorced. And so then my mom brought us back to Tennessee. And then we kind of split time between, you know, Tennessee and Miami. So your mom and dad, uh, your mom from Tennessee, long lineage going back to the Great Depression, we're saying. And I loved how you described your mom as a fiery redhead along with her fiery redhead sisters. (laughs) Oh yeah. They're all, you know, a bunch of characters. Um, can you imagine having five redheaded daughters running around the house? You know, 
I was thinking about redheads the other day. I'm like, God, they have this superpower. What is it? That red hair? I know. <laughs> I know. Um, and, you know, they're very proud of it. And everybody in the community, it's a small community. They all knew them as the Davis sisters. You know, you knew you could see them all coming. Big gaggle of, you know, five redheaded sisters. But yeah, they, they definitely had a huge influence on my life. Um, and it's just where they're from is so different than where my dad's family's from, who they are fiery as well. I mean, Caribbean people are very fiery and lively. And um, so that, it was that's really your dad's side of the family, the Caribbean side, correct? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And he essentially looks black, right? Yeah. Yep. He's a black man. Uh, my mom is, you know, dominant red jeans <laughs> has, has me presenting as a white person, you know, so it's yeah. interesting to be uh, half black and half uh, redhead and Latina. And, you know, it's just kind of a crazy mixture. And, you know, people just always looking at me as a white presenting person and assuming a lot of things visually. Um, but me, you know, identifying as half black. Um, and the, the the curiosity that comes up in those conversations often goes sideways. <laughs> well, I bet, especially because you lived in the South. Yeah, and exactly. you probably heard like myself, who grew up with a white family, a lot of racial undertones, and you're just kind of like button, you know, mm -hmm. sealed, or you're just kind of like, hmm, yeah, you don't know what to say. So let's go back though. Let's pedal backpedal a little bit with me. How okay. did your folks meet your mom and your dad? They both joined the military at the same time. So she left Paris, Tennessee, and he left, um, he had been living in New York City. So I think I told you a little bit about how my grandmother got them out of the Caribbean. It was during the time of Trujillo, the dictator, and they were like, we got to get out of here. So they ended up going to New York. And then once he finished school, he joined the military as well. So they met right after basic training and got married in Fort Benning, Georgia, and then they got stationed in Hawaii. So that's how I ended up in Hawaii. Okay. So your parents, when they were stationed in Hawaii, were, what time are we talking about the eighties or nineties here? No, this is uh, the 70s. Yeah, so I was oh, born in wow. 77. Yeah, so it was right after Vietnam ended. Um, they both, you know, have said that that time was kind of a a golden time for the military because the war had just ended and they were, you know, on the beach in Hawaii, you know, kind of learning how to be in the military. Um, and it, they definitely were not deployed to the war or anything like that. So um, it was a really interesting time for them. My dad was later on, you know, he ended up going to Afghanistan, but... Um, yeah, they, they definitely had an interesting experience being in Hawaii as their stint in the military in the early days. Your dad served in Afghanistan? He did. Yeah, he stayed in the military for 40 years. So he retired in 2015, I believe. Yeah. So you have a long history in your family of, of people who served this country. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it's mainly, you know, well, my mom, obviously, but also folks in my dad's family. So people coming here from Dominican Republic and then joining the U.S. military. And you have a brother. Yes, I have a brother who is um, from my mom and dad. And then we have a half sister who her mom is from Puerto Rico and she's younger. Her birthday's coming up on uh, Valentine's Day. She's going to be. Let's see. I think she's going to be 26. I think okay. that's right. Yeah. So your brother and you, do you look anything like? Yeah, we look alike. Um, he looks almost exactly like my dad. Um, and so it's funny because, you know, people joke and call him Sixto Blanco. My dad's name is Sixto. And so they call my brother Sixto Blanco, white Sixto. Um, and it's just, 
he looks exactly like it, but he's just kind of like a negative image of my dad, you know? So when I was growing up, you know, you go through all these interesting thought processes, like, am I adopted? Like, because kids would kids would say weird things like they can't be your parents. You know, there's no way that you're related to them, you know, because we were little brown babies running around playing in the sunshine and we'd get really dark. And then in the winter, we'd get really white. And then it was just really confusing. And then all of our friends saying, like, there's no way that's your family. Um, and then I started thinking, like, well, I've got to be related to them because I look just like my brother. My brother looks just like my dad, you know, so just your thought process when you're a kid is so interesting what what you you know what kind of paths it sort of takes you on when you're trying to figure out your mixed identity and taking all this outside feedback um, with regards to how you you know present to the world right so look i know nothing pretty much about the south except with what i've read in regards to reconstruction or obviously the civil war and that's not enough as it is already (laughs) yeah um but you spent I would say the foundation of your youth there. Is that fair to say your formative years kind of? Yeah, I would say so because I went to elementary school there and then we kind of bounced between Florida um, and Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico, but then um, I've finished high school there as well. So, and then my mom's family's still there. So I still go visit her quite a bit there. My dad bounces between Florida and Dominican Republic. um, So it's all sort of the Southeastern, you know, um, part of the States, but it, it definitely, I think people don't realize that the South is a very mixed place. Um, you know, I grew up in predominantly black communities and, you know, yeah, not just my family being, you know, half black. Um, you know, my high school was close to 80% African-American and I don't think people realize that about the South. I think they just imagine like Confederate flags flying everywhere and, you know, just kind of your Bubba redneck characters. Um, and it's it's a mixed place, and I don't think people realize that as much. So, um, yeah. what was that like going to a high school where it's eighty percent black students? You said you're black, and your father's black, your family's black, even though you're white and presenting. How was that? You know, it was interesting because for one year in high school, I ended up living in Pennsylvania with my aunt and uncle, and I moved from. Let me back up a little bit. When I was in junior high, I went to a school that was predominantly white. And so I went from there to a school in Pennsylvania where they were very different in their thinking about um, the race issue. It wasn't an issue. Whereas when I was at the all white school in junior high, I basically felt like I had to hide that I was half black. Um, My parents had been divorced. My dad wasn't in the picture because he was in Florida. Um, I had So you didn't have like, when you brought people over, they just saw pictures. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I had a boyfriend break up with me when I was in junior high because he basically found out that my dad was black. Um, You know, this is like a West Tennessee country bumpkin, sort of the redneck side of Tennessee um, sort of behavior. And then I moved to Pennsylvania for this year to a predominantly white school up there as well, but no one had a problem at all. Um, with my mixed ethnicity. And then from the all white high school in Pennsylvania, then I moved down to Memphis for my last three years of high school. And that was a predominantly black high school. And so that was a huge transition going from, you know, following the chain of events from Miami, where it's a very, you know, mixed like Caribbean place to West Tennessee and the countryside to Pennsylvania back to Memphis that was completely mixed. So it was just kind of like you said, you know, in one of your other episodes that I listened to, 
my people pleasing skills were really high because I, I was really good at reading the rooms and knowing like what could fly and what could not fly. Um, it was, it was challenging to kind of, you know, observe and see, you know, how people were going to accept me. And I felt like more than anything in my school in Memphis, black folks were more likely to go, you got some black in you. You're cool. I can tell you're mixed. You know, it's always to me in that experience in my life, it was the white folks who would always say, I don't believe you're mixed. I don't see it, you know? Um, and that's, that's what just was the reaction when they found out. Um, when, they folks, knew, when it was confirmed, you saw, they saw a photo. They would just be in disbelief. Like they still would just be like, I don't believe it. Like that's, that's crazy. Like, I don't see it. You know, I don't see it on your face. I don't see it at all. Whereas black folks would always be like, that's cool. You know, <laughs> it's just a strange difference of responses. I feel like. So among all the places that you've lived, was there any particular place where you struggled the most with your racial identity and your family background? I think uh, when I was in junior high, like I was telling you, when I was in West Tennessee, kind of in the country out where my grandparents lived, so where my mom grew up, essentially, it was out in the country and there were literally no other black kids um, at our junior high. And it felt like, like I said earlier, you know, when my boyfriend broke up with me, which, you know, that's so long ago, it's, it's just kind of laughable at this point. But right back then it was pretty devastating and it hurtful for me. So I started really like for the first time thinking, wow, my identity really affects how people relate to me. Um, and so I felt really anxious about it and I felt like I had to keep it a secret. And then later in life, I just flipped the complete opposite. And I was like, that's ridiculous. There's no reason for me to ever be like that ever again. You know, like I was when I was 11 years old. Um, so that was the hardest time for me. I feel like, yeah, because when you're keeping it a secret, and I, I know all those things really well, um, and I can relate to that on so many levels because it becomes where you're not growing mm -hmm. by doing that. You're right. just trying to make friends. Right. And you're not establishing yourself as an individual. Mm -hmm. And it's yeah. such a big part because like you're just, you're just protecting yourself. Right. But there's was, a danger to that. Absolutely. Um, it was basic survival mode, I felt like. Um, and then later on, I realized how dangerous that was and how important it was for me to embrace every part of myself. At what um, point was that? When you were like, when it kind of, you started shifting a little bit. When I went to the school in Pennsylvania. So when I went up north and everyone was kind of like, we don't care if your dad's mixed. You know, I felt, I felt like this new free moment to be able to express that. Cause I had gotten out of this, you know, country part of West Tennessee, which I had good experiences there too. Don't get me wrong. You yeah, know, it yeah, was yeah. just, this was just in the backdrop of this is something about me that, you know, I internalize and it affects my behavior around people, including my family. Like my grandfather was a raging racist. Like I know my family wouldn't be happy to hear me say that, but you know, he really was. Um, and a lot of his friends were too. So tiptoeing around not only school, but also my family. And then when I left there and went up north, it just felt like really liberating to embrace who I was, you know? And then that just continued into, you know, my 10th, 11th and 12th grades in high school when I went to Memphis. Um, it just basically at that point, I was like, oh yeah, okay, cool. Now I'm in a mixed school and this is way better than 
having to tiptoe around like my identity and why I turn really brown in the summer and get really white in the winter, you know. Um, why did you want to leave Memphis so badly? Um, after I finished high school? I guess, well, I'm dropping you on that because I listened to one of your podcasts. <laughs> you oh, yeah. Me, and uh-huh. you said you you'd mentioned just, I, I really wanted to leave Memphis badly. Yeah. And why was that? Was it because you couldn't be yourself and it because the devastation of just the boyfriend incident? I mean, was it family shit? Like what, like what made you want to get out of there? Well, so the boyfriend thing was when I was in junior high and that was when I was in the country, like in what, like in this place called Buchanan, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And so that was before I ended up in Memphis. That was like the, you know, predominantly white area outside of Memphis. And then when I went to Memphis, um, I came out as gay, like my whole life changed Mm -hmm. when I moved to Memphis. Um, I started dating women. Um, how old were you at this point? I was 15. Oh fuck. Yeah. And so luckily, you know, my mom is a very open individual and she was very accepting of me with that life choice. And, um, yeah, it was just a wild time. Um, Memphis is a crazy place though. I ended up, this is kind of a crazy story, but when I was 16, um, me and my girlfriend who we were going to a gay bar, I was sneaking into a gay bar and, um, we got shot in the parking lot outside of the gay bar. And both, you know, we were getting mugged. We didn't have any like money on us. We basically just had like a pack of cigarettes on us. Um, I don't smoke anymore, but back then I was smoking, um, both got shot. And it was a very traumatizing experience for both of us. And after that, I basically was just like, I've got to get out of this town. It's dangerous. Um, I know there's more to the world. Um, the, the person who shot both of us called us white bitches. Um, and I was like, I'm not even white, (laughs) you know, like, first of all, don't shoot me. Second of all, I'm not even white, you know? So it, I don't know. It was just a wild time. Um, And so to get out of the volatile South and also just dealing with being a mixed person, constantly bouncing between Memphis and then going up to see family in that area where it was predominantly white. And I just got so tired of everyone clarifying like who you are. Um, You know, in the South, everybody's like, well, there's, you know, black boy over there, blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, there's clarifying individuals. Oh, this white boy over there, like everybody just, leads up to every conversation by identifying who people are. And I, I was so tired of that. I was like, I got to get out of here. And I went, I came to visit Colorado and I just felt this sort of like relaxed vibe in Colorado where it wasn't as like racially volatile. Um, and so I just wanted to get out, you know, and that was right after high school. So. You had a lot to deal with because you were dealing yeah. with your racial identity you were coming out and you said you were born in 77, which you're yeah. around exactly around like my generation. Yeah. Like, like we watch boys don't cry yeah. and we're like, that shit makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I saw that's, that. Like it was, it was that like gay marriage was not accepted back then. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was sneaking into gay clubs and we definitely, we had to keep it secret, you know, like it was a very different world back then. And it was just another thing to keep secret too, you know, like 
my mixed identity. I felt like when I was younger, like junior high age, I was keeping secret. And then when I got into like high school, I was like, okay, well, here's the next thing about me that I'm going to keep secret is my like lifestyle. Um, And then I felt like, you know, they targeted us because we were leaving this gay bar. Um, It just turned into a lot of like secrets that I was keeping inside. And I was like, I got to get out of here. You know, I did end up going to college at Appalachian State in North Carolina. So that was nice to get you know, out of Tennessee. Um, and it's just a beautiful mountain town in the middle of nowhere, small town, um, you know, just a fun college campus. And I played soccer up there and it just really kind of changed my life and gave me a breath of fresh air. And after that mountain experience, then I was like, I'm going to go to bigger mountains in Colorado. So I ended up moving out here. So was it a challenge at all when you're in college? Cause I know I had so many identity problems in college, but for you, you know, you had the same problems ongoing problems from high school, moving into college and you, you found a good place. Did you get a lot of support? And yeah. were, you coming to your, were you coming into your own basically? Yeah, I felt like college, I started just really not caring anymore because I had spent so much of my youth just so pent up and worried about it. Yeah. Um, and so when I went to college, I was basically just like so happy to be independent. And I had um, a bunch of friends who played soccer with us from Trinidad and Tobago from the Caribbean. And, uh, they were always very accepting and like, you know, you're a, you know, you're a Caribbean like us. And I just felt like, you know, I was moving into a different sort of like season of my life and uh, college really liberated me quite a bit, um, with that regard. And then we had a bunch of international, uh, soccer players on the men's squads. And we were just a crazy mix of kids who just loved, you know, camaraderie and playing sports together. And it was, it was a great experience for sure. Were you a jock growing up? I was. I, I escaped everything with sports. Yeah. Oh, I my mean, God. Yeah. I would have been drowning in a gutter if it were <laughs> yeah. not for sports. I had no guidance at all. Yeah, I, absolutely. I definitely. Because yeah. it gave you a sense of belonging. Yep. Totally. Yeah. And you were probably good because you said you got a scholarship. Yeah. Played soccer I mean, for the team. Yeah. I, I felt like, you know, I had good success with sports and I felt I felt like, you know, it was something that I picked up easily and it also gave me a sense of community, like you said, and then we get to travel, you know, we traveled all over the place and I got to see different neighborhoods and different perspectives and it started making me feel like, okay, you know, there's, there's a lot more to see, even though we had traveled a lot when I was growing up, it was always kind of like insular with my family and then sports kind of let me see different parts of the world and um, just taught me about life, just how to like, you don't know, I just felt like it gave me a lot of good examples for life, you know? Um, your music. Mm-hmm. It's, it's rooted in, in kind of Southern, you know, melodies and guitar. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because you're, everything you're telling me is that you had to leave Memphis to be yourself. Yeah. Yet all the foundation of the music I hear uh-huh. is like it's it's rooted in that area yep absolutely so it's rooted so like it's it's rooted in home yep in a lot of ways so talk a little bit about like wh- how'd you get involved music you know with music like you you said your dad taught you at age 10 yeah yep um yeah he he's a great guitarist everybody on that side of the family they all play lots of music and um one summer he you know told me he would teach me how to play guitar and so as soon as he let me pick up his guitar and start playing. I was just obsessed. And I started really digging in and 
he loved, you know, music from the Caribbean, like salsa, merengue, bachata, stuff like that. But then also he loved, you know, rock and roll and he loved to just shred on his guitar. He's a great lead guitarist. And so we grew up with a lot of differences between like music from where he was from and then also jazz and rock. And then my mom loved old rock and roll and also like R&B and soul music from the South because that's where she grew up. And she definitely was vibing more with soul and R&B versus the country music that was coming out of there. So um, it's just kind of a mishmash of all of it, but a lot of it is rooted in Southeastern music. And so that's what I feel like influenced me the most is that sort of um, intersection of old soul and rock and roll and gospel. Um, and so stuff like Little Richard, you know, Fats Domino, um, Bo Diddley, stuff like that has really always influenced me because it's just kind of a mishmash. Carl Perkins, Johnny Cash, you know, all of that stuff is all very rooted together. And it, it all goes back to blues, which goes back to West Africa. You know, like all of it is just a direct line. And that also goes through the Caribbean and up into the Southeastern US, you know. So that's what's always moved me personally with music. My musical taste is all over the place. I love all types of music. Um, but for me, what I play, that's what really inspires me is music from the Southeastern region of the U.S. Right. Do you identify yourself in your story, in your Black roots, in your music? Yeah, I feel like I do. Um, I feel like it comes from- Because I've the only listened to a, a certain amount. I'm sorry. So No, that's okay. Yeah. Um, I definitely feel like it's from the blues aspect and- um, the urban storytelling that comes from that, you know, just growing up on Beale Street and being there with these old musicians that I just really was kind of blown away by. I mean, our dad used to take us down there because, you know, him being from the Caribbean, he was always, you know, learning songs from these bluesmen when he was learning guitar growing up. And then for him to be in Memphis, he was always very excited to say, let's go down to Beale Street. Let's go hear those guys just rip it up down there, you know? So um, that feels like it influenced a lot of my music rhythmically um, and just sort of the feeling of the music. A lot of people tell me that it sounds like country soul sometimes. So like a mesh of, you know, country because of my accent and then kind of soulful at the same time. So it's just kind of a blend of those two things. Yeah. Well, it reminded me, oh man, do you remember Shelby Lynn? Oh yeah. I love yeah. her. Yeah. Yeah. I was big into He's Shelby great. Lynn. Yeah. And it's weird because like we're, we're both, people of color. And it's funny because like I had the same kind of musical taste that you did. Uh-huh. And you're, it's funny because like your background in the music, it's so, it's very reflective of who you are yeah. and how much soul there is and what you had written me. And I kept thinking, man, she's been inspired by so many influences and in all everywhere you would you lived too. Yeah. So like, who were your, who are your favorites? Like when you were playing guitar, starting to play, you're like, I, I want to be like them. Kind of emulate it. Cause everyone's got to be a, a thief. I mean, a love, you know, a thief before they're a lover. Yeah, you know? <laughs> absolutely. I think when I was first learning, my dad was playing a ton of like Led Zeppelin and Santana and um, the Beatles and, you know, house of the rising sun that old traditional folk tune that has been passed on for generations, you know, and there's so many variations on that um, stemming from New Orleans. Um, and then it, you know, ended up 
being one of the animals greatest hits from the UK, you know, so um, that blend of music that came from the South and then was regurgitated through the British invasion through rock and roll. That was like my vein. I loved that so much because hearing the Beatles sing old tunes from, you know, Chuck Berry and Fats Domino that when I was a kid, I just thought that was so cool. Cause I was like, look at them, like, you know, playing this soulful music, they're from the UK, but also it, it felt like it was representing my mixed identity with people, you know, loving music from where I was from. And then also people who were from where my mom's family was from originally in the UK and just, you know, my dad teaching me how to play it. It was just like all these things connected for me. Yeah, that's a great point. Like you could be of a different ethnicity or feel separate from it, but it's an homage to it almost. Right. Respect to it. Yeah. Did you, did you, were you in a band in high school or college? When I was in high school, I went to a performing arts high school in Memphis and um, I was in the jazz band. And so I played guitar in the jazz band. Um, I definitely, at that time, I got really um, into sports. And so I had spent, you know, from 10 until like high school, just playing in my room. Um, I had moments where people would say, you know, get out your guitar and play for us. But then when I went to high school, I joined the jazz band, but it felt more like, I don't know, I was more obsessed with sports at the time. So jazz band was just kind of like a period in the day where I'd spend, you know, that period for jazz band. And then I'd be like, okay, I'm off to basketball practice or I'm off to softball practice or soccer or whatever. But then um, later in life, when I moved to Colorado, one of my good friend's mom, she said, why don't you ever sing? You know, and I was like, I don't know. I've never even thought about singing. I used to just play my guitar. And then uh, she's like, well, why not? You know, and I, I thought, yeah, you're right. I should learn how to sing, you know? So I started, um, playing music in 2005 in Denver and started playing out and, you know, made some good friends in town and they started encouraging me to go to open mics and then slowly started meeting people to play with. And since then I've played with a rotating cast of characters and, you know, a four piece band versus solo shows versus duo shows. It just kind of depends on the venue. Well, look, you have a lovely voice and that's why. Um, Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I was really, cause I'd seen you on Instagram and you know, for people to follow the page yeah. and I got curious and I listened, I was like, Oh shit. Really <laughs> Thank good. you. I appreciate you know, Cause it. I, I like, I went to college and like my, my favorite bands were like, I think my favorite album during college was, well, it was, it was Miles Davis kind of blue. Okay. It was black crows, uh, Southern music, music in the Southern harmony. I forgot the name of the, the Yeah. I can't remember the name of that. Oh, so good. So does that good. have, she talks to angels on it? Uh, no, it does not. Okay. It, that was the first one. It has, okay. uh, um, fuck, I forgot. Getting old. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I've had so many different tastes in R and B in high school, mm-hmm. but for some reason, Southern music, I just have always had a fondness and an attraction, like just loved it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. And knowing that you were from the South, I'm like, I, don't, I barely know anyone from the deep South or <laughs> had kind of like your lived experience. Yeah. It's a, it's a soulful place. I mean, people walking down the street, we joke about it. Cause it's like, they're walking to a certain beat, you know, like everybody's got this soul to them. It's a very, like they call Memphis Soulsville, USA, you know? Um, and it definitely gets into your blood and it's, it's a very, palpable feeling when you're there you just have to go and experience it that's all i can say you know if you can go to memphis or new orleans 
Oh, um, New Orleans is great. I've been to New Orleans. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So Memphis is, it's got a similar vibe to New Orleans. Um, you know, it's got Bill street and sort of, you know, kind of like the bourbon street area where there's a lot of music happening and art and creative sort of activities. Yeah. But, what do you, what do you think of Memphis now, now that it's changed so much? Um, you know, it's definitely grown a lot since I was, you know, we grew up in the eighties. So we were there when it was way different than it is now. A lot of stuff was boarded up and, um, the downtown area was kind of dilapidated and it definitely has, I don't know. I feel like it's grown a lot with FedEx coming in and being the central hub, um, there in Memphis, um, and the downtown area and the creative arts districts and everything have really exploded. So, um, I think they're doing a great job. I feel like, you know, I always root for Memphis. It, it has its ups and downs for sure. Um, I go and visit my mom occasionally. I got to get back down there soon, but I feel like it, it definitely has its own soul and it's just got a thing about it, you know? Yeah, it certainly does. Um, I want to end the podcast on this. What song lyric embodies you the best and why? Ooh. Um, so music that's not mine or music that both let's do both oh geez um, if you can think of it i mean fuck i'm putting it in the spot here i know <laughs> that's okay um let me think that's a great question you have editing capabilities so i'm sure uh, yeah can... i could yeah so take your time um because i can oh. tell you have so many influences in, like in your music yeah um, I so mean... the song that song lyric you wrote or someone else wrote that embodies you the best let's see I feel like the the lyric that I really go back to all the time is it's the music, it's the key. Let's see. It's the music, it's the key to your soul, your harmony. Um, that is something for me that really stands out. Um, it's in a song called Volatile or Stable. And it also goes into you make us feel like anything is possible. And so it's basically just sort of an homage to music um, and and the possibilities I feel like it has for, you know, connecting people and and your own like identity and how you portray yourself, you know, through your creative process. Um, I think that lyric really stands out for me. So it's the music, it's the key to your soul, your harmony. You make us feel like anything is possible. So I'll go with that one for a personal lyric. And then, oh man, um, I love, there's so many lyrics out there. This is a really hard question, but I keep going back to satisfied mind. Um, Who's that? It's, I don't know. I think, I don't know if Jeff Buckley wrote it. I know that he performed it. Oh, okay. Um, so what does it say? So Jeff Buckley, he's a yeah. legend. I've never really got into Jeff Buckley. There's oh, so many Jeff Buckley fucking fans. He's so good. Um, I was actually working in Memphis at the time that he died. Um, and I worked right by the river and I had been at a coffee shop and he was playing on the patio there. He, he was just sitting out there singing and playing. This is, he moved to Memphis for the summer to just record the last recording um, that's out there and available. And this song, Satisfied Mine, is on there. Um, but shortly after that, they found him. He, he drowned in the river. 
And uh, I just remember I had already liked him as a musician, but then I really dove into it because I was just heartbroken for, you know, I don't know, it was just a really sad story that he passed away. Um, but let's see, how many times do you hear someone say, oh man, you're gonna have to let me look it up. Google it, uh, yeah, I wanna hear yeah. it. I'm so eager to hear it now. And, it, it, and now I definitely know I gotta get on Spotify and listen to Jeff Buckley. Yeah. It's same thing, like my, my buddy of mine, introduced me to oh God, this is so bad Iggy Pop this should have been years ago I've known about Iggy oh, Pop oh I love Iggy Pop and he's so fucking rad so like, rad he's so rad he like he is rock just yeah angry joyous yeah. freedom loving rock I love him so much explosion of just energy and fl- yep. just feeling great absolutely yeah. did you google it yeah, hold on one second. Yeah, like, oh man, I'm so I, I now I'm like it, can't wait to go on Spotify later. And uh I think it's Porter Wagner. That's who uh, Dolly Parton was married to. Oh, okay. That's who wrote it. So um And Buckley sang it. Yes. Okay. Uh okay, here we go. How many times have you heard someone say, If I had money, I could do things my way, but little they know that it's so hard to find. One rich man in 10 with a satisfied mind. Thank you again, Bev and Luna, for coming on the Multiracial White Boy Podcast. Everybody, once again, um, go to Spotify right now. Go to iTunes, whatever. You know, go, go to BevanLuna.com. Please listen to her music. She rocks. And please check out the Instagram page on Multiracial White Boy. I, I think I posted some videos of her playing in some venues, and she is rocking out she is fearless man it's so awesome to see this girl on stage just crushing it okay everybody thank you again for tuning into the multiracial white boy podcast once again you could follow us on instagram at multiracial white boy um remember please to subscribe to the multiracial white boy podcast leave a review leave a review leave a review they go a long way people And please tell me what you thought about this podcast episode with Bevan Luna. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Um, What a wonderful person. I really, really enjoyed talking to her. It was fantastic. So thank you, Bevan, once again. And thank you, everyone who's tuning in every week. It means so much to me. I don't know how much I got in me to keep doing this, man. But, you know, I keep doing it. Because I love these stories. They're every other Thursday. Again, they are every other Thursday. So tune in. I'll see you in a couple weeks with an all new podcast episode. This is Kim tuning out. Bye-bye.